You are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. And in a minute or two, I will be interviewing Kate Kendall, who is a longtime social justice uh, activist uh, who has done many amazing things throughout her career. Uh, first, though, we need to have a little bit of a underwriting announcement. So we'll be back in just a moment. Support for KXSF comes from Park Plaza Fine Foods, a family-owned and operated grocery store serving San Francisco's Park Merced neighborhood. Park Plaza features an expanded foreign food section along with all your other grocery needs, as well as a popular sandwich deli with a reputation that stretches well beyond their immediate neighborhood. Park Plaza considers their customers family, and that's the way you'll be treated there. Visit Park Plaza Fine Foods at 111 Cambon Drive near San Francisco State University. Thanks for supporting KXSF 102.5 FM. Okay, let's get the mics working. Kate, you're there? I am here, Pamela. Oh, wow. So this is such... Okay, so I've been trying to make this happen for almost since I started the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, for those of you who are just tuning in, Kate Kendall is our guest today. Kate is a longtime racial, social justice, and equity advocate who led the National Center for Lesbian Rights for 22 years and is currently the chief of staff at the California Endowment, the largest health equity foundation in California. Thank you for being here, Kate. I am delighted to be talking to you and to be drinking wine at the same time that I'm being interviewed. This is a first for me. I think I'm going to make it be a pattern now going forward for any of my future interviews. Hey, queerly drinking. That's the way to go. You betcha. I love it. Yep. So uh, let's see. I feel like there's so much to talk about. And I've known you for a long time, so I know a lot about your background. But maybe if you could tell our listeners like who don't already know you who you are and what you've done. And how you got and how you got to be there? Oh, this will be quick. That'll be quick. Um, I'm just going to sip on my wine while you talk. <laughs> there keep, you go. Keep going. You know, I think I do want to start by saying, um, you know, democracy lives to fight another day, right? I mean, I had no idea when this was on my calendar, Pamela, how I was going to be walking in here or how we were going to be discussing um, anything other than, you know, the end of the world as we know it. And it looks like, thank for young people and black women yet again, uh, Gen Xers and Gen Zers, uh, we pulled democracy back from the brink and people made clear that abortion is not some fringe issue. Abortion is the core of the economy. It is the core of how people can conduct their lives. It is essential that we have access to abortion for individuals who uh, need to access abortion care and it is health care, in addition to uh, really pushing back against election deniability and election deniers. And part of why I cared so much about this is I feel like I got to be at the forefront of LGBT activism and civil rights wins during a two-decade period the beginning of which we thought, well, will we ever win marriage, for example, in our lifetime? And within the lifetime of, I don't know, a college sophomore, we won. And it just, you think of something like that, you think of transgender rights and, uh, and a huge slate of, of historic first yesterday with first uh, ever elected transgender individuals, first ever transgender man to a state legislature. 
At the same time, that's happening, huge attacks on transgender people. And so it's sort of this push-pull, but it felt like it feels like it's been push, 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 pushing us back, pushing us back. And now I feel like we get a little bit of a breath, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe that arc is going to start bending another direction because I don't want to see everything I care about, whether it's racial justice or pushing back against anti-Semitism, or trans rights, or just the right of people to live with dignity uh, and full sense of being and belonging. The idea that that was all uh, imperiled was almost more than I could take. And I have to say, you know, this is my first drink today. I'm clear about that, but it's not going to be my last because I'm ready to celebrate now. We have some spaciousness now to really uh, uh, push even harder for that, uh, that arc to bend. Well, so, okay, since we got right into it, which I knew we would, I just figured we'll, we'll like, build up to it. But, but since we're here, uh, yes, I mean, I was, the last two weeks, I just said to myself, the polls can be wrong, and if they're right, well, I'll have plenty of time to just wallow in my misery afterward, and I tried to, you, it's, it's impossible to completely shut out the news, but I really, like, I changed my homepage it was no longer the New York Times front page. It was the New York Times movie page. Okay. I, I like, okay, I'm just trying to push some of that out. And then yesterday when things were happening, I was like, okay, you know, we had somebody's sister last night. We had an event. So it was great being around community. And then I got a text from a friend about the Massachusetts governor's race. Maura Healy. Maura Healy. Uh, and Maura Healy is, you know, that the, and it was like the first, like, female elected to be governor of Massachusetts. And of course, and it's, he sounded pretty excited about it. So like, okay, this is probably good. She's probably a Democrat. But then again, you never really know, right? It's like, maybe this is one of like, you know, the MAGA, you know, wacko women, right? And I, I did some research and she's a lesbian. Like, yes, I was is. like, okay, this could be a good, this might, this night might not go that badly. And then I saw what happened in New York and the fact that, like, Kathleen Hochul was ever – that that race was even thought to be close was that was really concerning to me. So uh, where we are today, would we say the elections turned out, you know, for people who are who care about the issues we care about, you know, who, who care about choice, for who care about, uh, you know, people being able to love who they want and people being able to be the authentic person they are, you know, just for the, the variety of issues – it, it wasn't like it was a great election, but it could have been a whole lot worse. And I think even the, the bigger issue, uh, which is something that really shouldn't be partisan but is, is that the idea of democracy being in peril. Well, I don't think we're out of the clear, but I think that the election definitely sent a sign that, you know, the, like there are people in this country who are very conservative, and we may disagree on things, but there are also people who feel like, you know what, it's gone too far. And... You know, the idea of of changing elections and rigging elections and all the other stuff. And I, that, that to me, is it's a glimmer of hope. Like, I, I feel like, and I don't know about you, but I f have a newfound respect for Liz Cheney, as do quite a few people I know who are really progressive. We may disagree with her on 98% of everything, but if my opposition if our, is going to be Liz Cheney, someone who's going to play by the rules... And where you you might be able to see compromise from time to time, it's like okay, I'll take that. Well, that just goes to show 
how far the bar has fallen when when we try to our allyship is based on do you respect democracy and right. are you willing to respect free and fair elections and not engage in conspiracy QAnon nut job theories um we we are still in a very perilous moment and you know I'll weave in a little bit of my background I mean I grew up Mormon in Utah so I know I came out at a time uh, feeling tremendous suppression, uh, mostly because I was a feminist, and that was the main reason for me leaving the Mormon Church when I was in college. But I, I, I voted in elections, and nobody I ever voted for won until Bill Clinton. When I and I still lived in Utah at that time, and the, but the idea that 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 now. It used to be I, I disagreed with conservatives. Obviously, I thought George W. Bush was like the worst president uh, in my lifetime. And boy, like, you know, hold my beer. No, not uh, that somebody could come along and be even worse. But the idea that we would be arguing not over conservative versus more progressive values and worldview, uh, that's hard enough. But the idea that the GOP has now been overtaken by individuals who are willing to cheat to win any election at any cost. And if they don't win, they're willing to call foul and claim uh, election uh, misdeeds, which are completely baseless. That's a whole different kind of playing field. And I just was completely unprepared. I thought growing up in Utah, coming out as a lesbian, working for the ACLU in Utah, then coming to San Francisco, starting as legal director at NCLR and then executive director at NCLR, and seeing just the enormous degradation and oppression of queer people generally in all walks of life and having us kind of come out of that and have a, have a greater role in civil society and greater protections and dignity. I thought that was going to be the biggest fight. And I just, I feel like all of us, between, between COVID and Trumpism and Magadum and the QAnon theories, I've, I think a lot of us, certainly my generation and maybe a little bit younger and older, are just shaking our heads thinking, how did we get here? And how we got here is we never thought anything like this could happen. It now has. And we're going to be saved by young people and uh, black women. <laughs> and so thankfully, um, people are coming behind us and showing up in ways that uh, they're willing to draw a line in the sand and say, no, you're not doing this anymore. Well, okay. And I think today, like it's not, I said, it's not a great victory, but it could have been so much worse. So let's like, you know, take it, take it with it what we can. By the same token, Stacey Abrams did lose in Georgia, and she lost pretty big, too. I mean, there's no question that she's had a huge impact. She was a big reason why Raphael Warner and uh, John Ossoff won in 2020. Uh, I'm hoping that she's going to really help Raphael Warnock again. I mean, I'm sure she will, and, and yeah. not just her, but her entire organization. No doubt. But I do, and Karen Bass is in a real fight in L.A. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, Well, when you put $100 million into a mayoral race— which is about the amount that most governor races expend, uh, how can she fight against that? And yet 
she is in a fight for her political life in the mayor's race in L.A., and he bought and paid for it. If he wins it, it will be because he bought and paid for it, and L.A. is just going to have to go through whatever that means and you know, come out with the other end and hopefully little damage done and an ability to come back to greater progressive values and inclusion and not simply rapacious capitalism and development. So, okay, this is, I don't know where it stands within LA. Last time I heard she had a little bit of an edge, but the fact that this person can just come and put this money into it is just, it's atrocious. And we're thinking about how are we going to preserve any semblance of democracy that we have in this country. It's a lot of it also has to do with the amount of money that that's in politics. And I think that in some ways, I mean, yes, it's a good, I think that the fact that things didn't go as, as bad as we thought is, is a very good thing, but for the Democrats or for people who are progressive or people who care about democracy to think, okay, we got through it. It's not going to happen. They're not going away. Yeah. You know, it, it took, it, you know, it took the Nazis 10 years to get to where they, you know, to where they were, where they were democratically elected and another 12 years to get rid of them. So it's not like, like these people are necessarily going away. And I feel a big problem that the Democrats have is their messaging is terrible. I mean, I also don't think that there are any inspirational leaders right now. I mean, I think they are, but they're not necessarily on the national level. I think Katie Porter is an inspirational leader. Stacey Abrams is an inspirational leader, but and she has national profile, but she doesn't. She hasn't won a, a, an office. So you know, it's kind of like, where are the Democrats from now? I know that Biden is now taking a little bit of a victory lap because we thought it was going to be, you know, terrible. But we still have a major problem on our hands. We have a problem in the messaging, and we also have a problem with our, a system that allows this guy to come from out of nowhere in Los Angeles, put $100 million into a race, and potentially defeat someone who is an incredibly seasoned, experienced politician who really cares about what's going on. And who has an amazing resume. I mean, yeah. it's a little bit evocative of the Hillary Clinton, you know, Donald Trump race. I mean, she... Karen Bass is eminently qualified for this position, hugely competent, well-respected, and, you know, Caruso comes in with $100 million and can blanket the airwaves. And for people who are not steeped in politics, you know, they see what they see, and, and that is no – I mean, people are just trying to live their lives, you know, sometimes working two or three jobs – just trying to, you know, get through the day, you know, get their kids to school, get to work, you know, try to juggle a million different things. And, and so the, the, when the playing field is so skewed because of unlimited resources, that's also a threat to democracy. But, you know, your point is well taken. All I'm saying that what we got out of yesterday is a little bit of breathing room and a sense of some hope, you know, because you got to give them hope, right? Some hope that the we've got a younger generation that is now engaged. This idea that young people don't vote, so they're not. Why bother with them? That's completely ridiculous and actually actually defamatory. Um, understanding the importance of the black vote and 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 other people of color, it is. It, we have a little bit of room 
to really dive into, okay, what really worked? What worked with young people and, and what worked with black voters and particularly black women? And we have to have a message that isn't just voting against something. I mean, obviously, the overturn of Roe was completely galvanizing for a huge swath of the electorate. But moving forward, two, two things. I think it's hard for us as, as progressives or Democrats, and I'll just speak to, as, as a Democrat because we're talking politics and these are the two parties that dominate everything. It's hard to come up with a message that everyone will find inspiring because there is a great multiplicity of perspectives and views. We, we are not a monolith. And so I feel like we have a little bit of a harder time with exactly a message that galvanizes and with the right, it's, you know, they, they, they ran on crime and the economy and inflation. Inflation, which Biden had nothing to do with. Right. And, the, the and economy, crime, which is totally made up. Totally complete, made up. Completely. Crime rate is, is decreasing in almost yeah. every single major city except the cities in, sta- in red states. Right. And so it's, it's a complete fabrication. But who's going to take the time to do the research to figure it out? So part but, of but it. But that's also. That's our the, diversity that's the, makes yeah. the messaging hard. I think the diversity does. I mean, that's also the fault of the mass media. Oh, for sure. The media totally, they chased headlines that weren't even true. They chased these red wave headlines in a way. I mean, the New York Times pretty much printed not their last edition of the night, but like their eight o'clock edition was essentially a Dewey defeats Truman headline, essentially saying Mm -hmm. GOP making huge gains. And it turns out that was completely ridiculous, but they already had that narrative in their head. The, the failure of the media to tell the true story because they're afraid of being painted as quote liberal media is one of the great shames of where we are right now in terms of the exchange of legitimate information. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that the media and the polls and these, you know, these people so far, the experts who know what's going to happen. I think what, what I think what we've seen in the last few election cycles, starting in 2016, is that they don't necessarily really know what's what's going on. And I I think that it'll be, you know, where going forward that's going to happen. And the other thing too is everyone's like, oh, the New York Times is such a liberal paper. It's like, you know what? No. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. I, they fit. I, I mean, I, I love the New York Times. I've always loved the New York Times, and I have been so disappointed so many times by this framing, the both sidesism when there's really right. no other side. You're either for democracy or you're against it, um, and maybe there'll be some postmortem about how the media got this so wrong. And, and the media, like you talk about, Kathy Hochul in New York. The only reason that race was close is because of headlines saying it was close, which drove voter turnout to vote for her opponent, which he came no, he didn't come close at all to defeating her. But what they may have done by driving that voter turnout to vote for him, they may have flipped a couple of House seats to Republicans rather than Democrats. So there are real world consequences if you gin up a a horse race when there is no horse race. And yet the media did that in New York again and again, and the New York Times did it over and over. Yeah. We need to take a quick break. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. Our guest today is Kate Kendall, and we'll be back in just a moment. 
Hey, all you out there in KXSF radio lands on Ramai Tush Ohlone territories and all over the international interwebs. Radio Bob here at Frequency Uplift. Join us on San Francisco Community Radio Sundays, 10 p.m. to 12 midnight for international sounds from all corners and all struggles for poets and painters, activists and artists making noise, making change. A Sound Sanctuary Sundays, 10 p.m. to midnight. Frequency Uplift here on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Okay, so we're back with Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. This is Pamela Louie, and my guest is Kay Kendall, who is a longtime civil rights, social justice activist. And we were talking about the election yesterday and the results and our thoughts on it, which I'm sure will creep back into the conversation. But I let, let's talk a bit about your work with NCLR, uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights. And I know that you're you know, you, you left a few years ago and you're doing other things, and I want to discuss that too. But you were with NCLR for so long. And I remember meeting you, I think, in 1996 at, at a, a, an NCLR, a small NCLR fundraiser. And I don't even think you were officially executive director at that time. And uh, now, you know, then years later, and you presided over a major growth of an organization. So how to you, from, from your, like, a bird's eye view. How did NCLR change over the course of time? And, and I'll, I'll just say before you say that, to me, NCLR was and I think still is probably the most effective LGBTQ organization in the country. Well, it's all our staff. I mean, I I got to preside and lead an amazingly talented staff, many of whom are still there who devoted a career to creatively and fiercely finding ways to defeat bad laws that defamed and in some ways criminalized, and actually literally, LGBTQ people, or devised creative strategies for winning new protections in states for LGBTQ people. NCLR was founded in 1977. I started with the organization in 1994 and became executive director a few months after we met in 1996, the same week uh, my son Julian was born, who is now 26. And, and what NCLR did before I even got there was pioneered second parent adoptions. The ability of when two lesbians had a kid Keep in mind, this is years before marriage, decades before marriage. Often, there were no protections for the non-biological parent, and only one parent of, this, of, of one sex could adopt. You couldn't have a same-sex adoption. And so we pioneered second-parent adoption. This is under Donna Hitchens and Roberta Actenberg. Donna Hitchens is the founder of NCLR. Saw a need because lesbians were forming families. So family law has always been the core of NCLR's work, but of course, family law is, is not, cannot be cabined or have guardrails around it. It impacts every single aspect of one's life, whether one's in a relationship or has children or not. And, and so from the very beginning, the ethos of the organization was, there is nothing here to protect parents who are in a same-sex relationship. Okay, well, let's create that. And that just, that ethos that it can be done, yes, we can do something about that, was just 
it just infused the entire organization. And when I got there, it just it, it there was a coalescence of amazing staff. Shannon Minter, who is still NCLR's legal director, one of the probably the foremost pioneer of protections for LGBTQ people in the country, um, doesn't get nearly enough of what he he should get in terms of accolades and recognition. And it just I just I in some ways I sort of stepped back and watched. Yes, I was able to fundraise because people cared about this. We brought in huge numbers of donors, lesbians, of course, primarily, but also gay men, bisexual, transgender, and straight allies who saw the vision for us saying, we know the world can be better for queer people generally, and especially young queer people, and especially those raising children. And people said, you bet, we're in. And then we just had win after win. Now, we got our teeth kicked in many, many times. I want to be clear about that, and I'll never not remember those defeats. But we started to ride a wave of enormous change. And we had key partners in other organizations, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, uh, GLAD, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders in Boston. And it, we just... I felt like we had lightning in a bottle. It was the right place at the right time for society to begin to recognize the existence of LGBTQ people, people coming out, taking on Harvey Milk's exhortation to come out, come out wherever you are. And slowly you could just, you could almost feel it perceptibly. You could feel sort of the, the fissures closing and the kind of ice melting a little bit. And, and then of course the whole fight around marriage and all the bills that were passed to ban marriage between same sex couples, the defense of marriage act signed by Clinton, all of that was enormously galvanizing. And, and while marriage, I want to be clear, I do not think marriage should, you should be married as a way to get rights and benefits and protections from the government. I think we should do it based on families of affinity. I think we should do it based on relationships of interdependence. But you got to you okay, start, but you that start would be, yeah, with same-sex couples. Yeah, yeah, it would be true for everyone. It would be true for everyone. And I think, I think we can still get there. Um, but I came to see marriage as an economic justice issue because so, there's such a safety net when a couple is married, and particularly if they have children. So all this is to say that we, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time when there was a huge sea change leading an organization that I think you're right has been enormously effective with a super talented staff. And every day I got up and I was like, you know, pinch me. I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living. Oh, so, I mean, I remember in 2008, Obama won, but then Prop A passed in California, which, you know, Banned same-sex marriage, and that it was worst like day a, of my career. It was awful, and I know you worked really hard, as did some other organizations, but you stayed with it. And then in 2015, when Obergefell versus Hodge was, you like I know you were there at the Supreme Court. So, what was that like, just being in the court? And uh, you know, at the time, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive; she was there. Uh, we had a different court. We had a court that. Yeah, we we had we had a, a court that had a modicum of decency. Thank you. Uh, so, so I'll say it. Yeah. So so what was what was it like for you? I mean, 
first of all, just being there at the Supreme Court, ha- had you done any, have you, had you been before the U.S. Supreme Court before? The very first time I sat in the gallery at the U.S. Supreme Court was uh, the challenge to DOMA. Well, that was 2013. So this was the, the Windsor case. Edie Windsor, who I got to meet multiple times, got to hang out and drink with. <laughs> Edie Windsor, who when I finally said, as a group of us were hanging out in her hotel room in Philadelphia, I finally said at 2 a.m., Edie, I have to go to bed. I've got to catch a flight in the morning. <laughs> and she was like, it's still early. <laughs> and so Edie Windsor just, um, you know, changed the world. And her case uh, – I was there when the case, her case was argued. It was the very first time I'd been at the court, even in all my years of doing advocacy. And I was standing in line since, like, midnight. And as the sun came up, I looked up at the Supreme Court, and it's now all cordoned off. There's fences and everything because of, uh, of all the January 6th um, uh, insurrectionist, you know, terroristic behavior but it wasn't then, and you could go right up to the to the front door. Uh, and I'm standing there, the sun's coming up, and I see the inscription on the Supreme Court building, Equal Justice Under Law. And I remember thinking, I sure hope so. And I felt like I was a kid that had just walked into Disneyland. I mean, I I was completely overwhelmed by being able to be there, watching the justices come out, especially... Ginsburg, who I had admired for so long, I taught her. I taught her cases at when I taught at Berkeley and Hastings. It, I, I was, oh, I was, I was com- almost speechless. And Shannon and I were sitting together, and I was like, I don't. There's Nina Totenberg. I mean, I was, I couldn't even. <laughs> I was like completely beside myself. And then, of course, we know what happened. That was the day that Prop Eight uh, was also argued and the validity of Prop 8 and whether the proponents of Prop 8 had standing to sue to enforce it. So both those cases were argued the same day, uh, and we all know how they ended up being ruled on, ruled on in our favor. Huge, huge, huge day of an enormous win in both cases. And then two years later, uh, I I actually didn't go to the court for the argument Uh, I went to the court for the argument in Obergefell, so that was the second time I was at the court. That was also an amazing experience. And it really did feel like after DOMA was struck down, this would be now 2014, so now we're arguing in 2015. And and when we were before the court, it felt like – it really did feel like there had been a shift. And it really did feel like, you know what – we could do this. And we didn't know for sure, but hearing Kennedy's questions, knowing he's the swing vote, it just felt like it was, it was going to be different. And, um, and then on the eve of the decision coming down, I decided not to be in DC for the announcement of the decision. I wanted to be in San Francisco. And so if the, if the nadir of my career was, the passage of Prop 8, which it very much was, certainly the zenith of my career was when I heard, as I'm refreshing again and again and again, SCOTUS blog, I see the words, I see the sentence, Obergefell, they're, they're now going to announce it because we've been waiting for weeks, 
Obergefell, opinion by Kennedy. And as soon as I saw those words, opinion by Kennedy, I knew we'd won because Kennedy was not going to have his legacy striking down DOMA, striking down laws that criminalize same-sex sexual intimacy. He was not going to allow those to be imperiled. And if he wrote the decision in the marriage cases, we had won. And, you know, I screamed and screamed and screamed and, you know, woke up the kids and the dog started barking. I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience. And, and the reason it was so powerful to be at the Supreme Court is because I came to consciousness seeing the court as being at the vanguard of individual liberty and protection and dignity. So to see that so debased in the six justice majority, individuals who don't even have the qualifications to be on a federal bench, let alone on the Supreme Court, it is, it is manifestly um, venal and uh, appalling to me that the court has fallen so far. Well, and, and also, well, you said, you know, Kennedy's legacy. Kennedy's legacy is giving us Brett Kavanaugh. That is true. So that I think that's true. that's how you know he may he sullied his legacy. Yeah, he he sure did. Uh, but I think for a lot of people, thinking, okay, we now have marriage equality, and there's so many other issues that the LGBT community needs to deal with. I as like what's happening in Florida, what's happening around transgender rights. I just find extremely upsetting. But the other thing, too, is that in the way that we saw Roe fall, you know, a Obergefell could fall, too. And it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, you know, with this you know, Supreme Court season, you know, session, like 22, 23. But it's just a matter of time. And I, I, I am concerned that we could have Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate and Democratic uh, presidents, you know, at some point. But as long as we have this current court, or even if it's like a 5-4, that right may very well fall. How, how concerned are you about that? I would have said that I didn't think that was likely until Thomas you know, put that in his opinion, in, the, in the, his concurring opinion when under uh, when overruling Roe. Essentially, he pretty much said, okay, well... Uh, laws that criminalize same-sex sexual intimacy and that upheld marriage between same-sex couples should be next. And first of all, that is such a violation of judicial temperament and objectivity. I mean, we all know where Thomas stands, but to, but to signal it, he's essentially inviting the most toxic elements in society to bring cases to dehumanize uh, queer people. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't see... And I, you know, I don't have a legal background. I do not, but knowing enough things about the stuff with his wife, I don't understand how, why has, how he hasn't gotten impeached yet. Yeah, well, he definitely should be recusing himself. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, I think that, you know, in some ways maybe, I don't know, maybe Merrick Garland was waiting until they got through the midterms so they didn't overly politicize it. This is the other thing. The, 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 the Democrat. I, I think I need some more wine for this. Can you pass the bottle, please? <laughs> Here you go. Here you go. The Democrats. Why is it the Democrats are willing to play by the rules and the Republicans never play by the rules? And so Merrick Garland probably wanted to get through the midterm so he didn't look political. And yet, you know, uh, I'm, the indictments, indictments have to be coming or some sort of – there has to be some sort of consequence for Thomas 
his wife, Ginny Thomas, engaging in encouraging an insurrection, and he still sits on the Supreme Court. But back to the threat to Obergefell, this is what I'll say about that. Uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned, and we now had five states yesterday that passed laws enshrining protections for abortion access in their state constitutions. Yeah, it, well, I don't know if it was in the Constitution, but Kentucky as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and well, in the Kentucky, Kentucky ended up put voting down a right. law that would have like enshrined uh, criminalizing abortion. Uh, and Kansas earlier was going to mm. do that. And that, that's the, that was the first shot over the ballot. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Cause I was really worried what was going to happen in Kansas. And it, that, that law went down by like, what? It felt like it was 70 to 30. It was a huge, yeah. huge number. Wasn't close. But you know what? This is the thing, Pamela. If we have the House and the Senate and the White House, we can pass a constitutional amendment signed by the president. Not a constitutional amendment. We can pass federal legislation that will protect marriage equality. And that would have to be challenged. And, you know, but if, like, if we have duly elected representatives that pass protections for same-sex marriage in the same way they would probably federalize protections for access to abortion, that can be done. Now, it doesn't mean it can't still be challenged, but it's much more difficult to do it when a duly elected members of the House and the Senate and a duly elected president have signed a law. I mean, what is the challenge? We disagree with it. That is not a legitimate challenge. Now, this court could do anything, and I don't trust these six justices to actually abide by decorum or precedent at all, of course, but... If we, if we somehow, when all is said and done, keep the House uh, and the Senate, um, and, and, and obviously we have the White House, we a- absolutely, there should be legislation passed right away that enshrines federal protections for marriage, enshrines federal protections for abortion access, do something about immigration, um, do something about voting rights to restore voting rights because this gerrymandering, the gerrymandering is so egregious and, and it amounts to cheating because the Republicans know what I feel like we are finally catching on to, that they can only win if they cheat. And the idea, the fact that we didn't, the fact that things are so close in so many of these races still, like you look at Warnock and Herschel Walker, how is that even close? Well, it's close because of gerrymandered districts and cheating. So we just have to understand we're not – this is not a fair level playing field because of what Republican-led legislatures have done to voting rights and what the Supreme Court has done to voting rights in this country. A lot of people don't vote because they're scared to vote and they're afraid that they will be challenged in some way and they're like, you know what, it's just not worth it. So if we can win with such a skewed – playing field, just imagine if we could get rid of those cheating, those laws that allow people to cheat and to uh, subvert the will of the voters. And if, if we keep the House, take the Senate, and, now, and we still have the White House, I'm telling you, there are th- those are the three things we should pass. Voting rights, enshrining federal protections for abortion access, and marriage between same-sex couples, in addition to a range of other things. But um, let's, we should just do all that immediately. But, that, but that, that's a big if, because it looks like the Republicans are going to take the House. 
you know, the Senate is still very much up in the air. Um, so, and it, there was there was some movement to try to enshrine same-sex marriage rights. And apparently, of, of what I understand, one of the, like Tammy Baldwin was uh, what, like, I know this is a very big issue for her. And I guess she was even talking to Ron Johnson about it. Uh, but his thing was, I can't do anything about it before the election. Uh, so it's her, I guess, and I could be wrong, but she sort of agreed to sort of like tone it down and try to deal with it after the election. You know, so maybe maybe between now and you know, the end of the year, something will happen when you have you know someone like Ron Johnson, where he's he got reelected, so he he could vote you know, however he wants to vote. But um, you know, all these things, you know, I I don't know. I I am I am kind of scared about what this court is going to do. Anyway, yeah, no, you know. no, you should be because. This is a court that does not have any reverence for precedent, any reverence for the rule of law and stable society, and frankly, any reverence or understanding of the importance and the solemnity of their role. And I don't want to do some genuflecting around, oh my God, it's the Supreme Court, but Let's understand that this is, these are nine people, nine human beings who can change the course of events in this country. Nine people. You could fit them in a very small 1964 Volkswagen if they all jammed together really tightly. The idea that nine people could change the course of human events from either breath and spaciousness and justice to degradation and oppression, that is ludicrous. But the reason we've avoided going totally off the cliff before is we had justices, even if I totally disagreed with them, like Rehnquist or Scalia, who still understood and felt a level of solemnity for their role. I would give anything to have Rehnquist and Scalia back on the court again. I would trade. I would. I would. You know, push out Kavanaugh immediately, and Amy Coney Barrett. Boom, you're out of here. Put on Scalia and Rehnquist because this is a court filled with you know clowns and legal Neanderthals, and it is. It is. It's essentially, you know, the brakes are off and there are no rules. Well, so we need to take another quick break. We'll be back in just a minute. You're listening to KXSF. San Francisco. Hear that? That's a room full of people taking calls from listeners donating to community-supported radio just like KXSF-FM. But because we don't have a big studio filled with people or even more than one phone, all you're going to hear is one of our DJs asking you to invest in 100% volunteer-driven, listener-supported KXSF. So go online now to kxsf.fm Click on Donate Now and keep us on the air by contributing. KXSF 102.5 FM, homegrown radio for San Francisco, by San Francisco. Support for KXSF San Francisco Community Radio is provided by Babylon Burning, San Francisco's oldest screen printer. Babylon Burning is a San Francisco legacy business offering full-service screen printing for your band or company. 
Located in San Francisco's Soma District at 63 Bluxom Street, Babylon Burning has served the Bay Area since 1976. Their website is BabylonTea.com. That's B-A-B-Y-L-O-N-T-E-E.com. Okay, uh, we're back. You're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. I'm Pamela Louie, and my guest is Kate Kendall, who is a longtime social justice advocate, uh, has dedicated her, her life to this, to so many great important uh, causes uh, for 22 years led NCLR, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which uh, continues to be at the forefront of civil rights, not just for, I mean, yes, for L- the LGBTQ community, but on a broader scale as well. And um, you've done amazing work in your life, Kate, and I have so much admiration for what you've done. I do think you should write a book, but, but let, let's, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing right now because you left NCLR a few years ago and dare I ask why oh gosh after 22 years and what was I 20 at that point you know 58 (laughs) it was time it was time it was time to 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 leave that seat for somebody else okay and I hear you I I well I you know, miss you being there. I also understand. I think it's, you know, things do need to change and organizations need to change and people need to change. So let's talk about the work that you're doing right now. You know, I'm going to do that, but this just reminds me, I want to do a shout out to NCLR. Uh, their anniversary celebration is, uh, November 11th. I guess that's two days from now. I will not be able to be there, but the new executive director, Imani Rupert Gordon, is absolutely fantastic. And look, this is the thing. Over time, over really like the last five or six years, we've seen a huge change in leadership, uh, in queer leadership of LGBTQ organizations. From overwhelmingly white to now a huge percentage of uh, women and men of color. And that is the future of the movement. It is the future of this country. And so relatedly to that, I will say, so if you like look up the NCLR anniversary celebration, you can go to nclrights.org. You know, if you don't have tickets, get tickets. It's, you'll learn more about this fantastic organization that I feel so honored that I got to be a part of. And I am um, their new executive director, Imani Rupert Gordon's biggest fan. That said, I, I, now work at the California Endowment as chief of staff. California Endowment is a health equity organization that was created when Blue Cross Blue Shield went for profit. In order to get permission to go for profit, the California legislature said, well, you have to set up a public benefit foundation, fund it with $4 billion, and then you can go do whatever you do in terms of the for-profit world. So they did that. And we are now the largest uh, foundation in California, certainly the largest, I think the largest healthcare foundation, health equity foundation, maybe in the United States. And my job is to really help the organization navigate some of the most intractable issues in the state of California, but from an internal place. Our staff, 
150 staff in four different offices are absolutely fantastic in community funding organizations, $200 million a year in resources to organizations. We don't just write a check. We are a true partner, uh, th thinking about a thought partner. What do people need on the ground? How do we change health outcomes for Californians? And this isn't just about can you afford a prescription or can you see a doctor? That's, that's a medical model. That's, that is actually not so much what we do anymore. Now it's how do we end the school to prison pipeline? How do we get rid of youth prisons? How do we get school resource officers, police, out of schools? How do we make sure that young people have walkable neighborhoods and feel safe? Uh, how do we deal with um, uh, racism and white supremacist culture that is so oppressive on the opportunities for so many communities. There is so much written about this. There are so many books that we as white people can read to educate ourselves about how we got here. How we got here as a country and how we made our richness as a country and our wealth as a country was on the backs of slave labor. We have never fully atoned for or acknowledged that history. So part of what I get to do at the California Endowment is help the organization in our own internal racial equity journey based on what we've been hearing from community about this is the central issue. Race and white supremacy is the central issue impacting the health of Californians, of any race. And I get to be in an organization where I try to help our leader, Bob Ross, our CEO, who's one of the few black men in philanthropy, and our executive team and the staff be able to do their very best work to try to dismantle systems of oppression so that all Californians can thrive and feel health in a way that is not just going to the doctor when you're sick. It's feeling like you have opportunity, that you can breathe, that you have promise and and that you are seen for who you are that is really what the organization does and i i thought nclr was nclr was probably the best job of a lifetime but i'll tell you what i i never thought i'd have another job where i felt the work was so consequential and here i am well well and i, I feel like i i understood broadly what you're you're talking about i know so much of this is in the details too but we're and not as a but i think california is different from a lot of other parts of the country and that we're not letting ourselves get derailed by other things so when it comes to things like health care it's like okay we're going to take obamacare and we're going to run with it and make it even better uh, and we did that i mean we made sure that undocumented people were covered yeah yeah, but I still hear like Blue Cross, Blue Shield think, okay, that's still a for-profit company. So trying to think like where is – like where all this fits together for me. And and look, it's not to say that every – just because you're a for-profit company doesn't mean that you're – Well, but see, we're bad. not anymore. Yeah, yeah. Blue okay. Cross, Blue Shield is completely separate from us. Okay, we so have it's a separate no, We have nothing to do with them anymore. They set up the California Endowment as a separate – separate public benefit foundation that is we are that is all we do so we are we are not beholden to 
to even how we were created. And we have taken positions where we disagree with the insurance industry or we disagree with the medical model or we disagree with how who spun us off, Blue Cross Blue Shield, because our goal is a healthier California based on this, what, what people often call the social determinants of health. It's not just can you afford health care and do you have insurance. It's do you have the ability to take care of yourself and your family unburdened by racism, uh, uh, jingoism, nationalism, anti-immigrant sentiment, any of these, like there are so many ways in which people who are poor or are immigrants or of color or my, maybe uh, the intersection of all of those in, and, in, and also queer people cannot find their way and cannot make their way to feeling like they have health and opportunity. If you don't have opportunity, you don't have health. If you feel oppression and degradation every day, you don't have health. So the California Endowment is completely independent of any other system and able to do really transformative work. And we're not perfect. Look, we're learning every single day, but there is a great amount of humility in the organization to try to figure out what did we get wrong, what do we need to do differently, and it's all embedded in power building in community, power building in community. We don't have the answers. No one in the organization has the answers. You know who has the answers? People in community. We listen to them, and then we spread our resources based on what we hear from community. What's being done to address mental health? Because I mean, mental health has always been an, an issue that people have disregarded, but especially with the pandemic and the way that it just, the mental health impacts reverberated throughout our communities. So, I, like, is it being addressed? I love that question because I do agree that this has been a huge oversight in thinking about healthcare. The California Endowment convened just a few months ago a youth mental wellness summit. And the Attorney General for the United States came because this is his big issue. He's focused primarily on youth mental wellness because if you, if you don't move upstream to figure out trauma, how it impacts mental health, then you're dealing with later stream issues as well. So Bob, our CEO, uh, we've now shifted significant resources to particularly youth mental wellness. It's not the only place where we're funding mental health, but it is now a big piece of what our health systems team is focusing on. Again, who's in community? What are we hearing? What are the best tactics and strategies? Let's listen to community and then fund there. But this is, this is relatively new for the endowment to begin focusing on mental health. So the question comes right on time, but, uh, but it is now a huge priority. Yeah, I would imagine, and I definitely understand the need to have a focus on youth, but so many people of all ages have been I, I, impacted not only, let's say, by mental health, but what's going on in the country. Like, I feel like I wake up and I listen to the news or I, and, I, and I feel stressed. 
And I know a lot of other people feel that way too. You know, when you think, yep. wow, we might be have a, like, come tomorrow, we might have a fascist country. Okay, we don't have, so it doesn't look like it's going to, that's necessarily going to happen right now. But it's still like, there are, there, you know, just to know that there are people who have such hatred and vitriol, who have so much power in this country, I think, is that a huge negative impact on so many people's mental health. Yep. And especially, let's say, for people like yourself, like like me. You know, we are, you know, Gen X, baby boomer. You know, I'm early Gen X, so I'm not that far behind you. But, you yeah, know. You're a ways behind, babe. <laughs> well, we're not, not that much. But, but it's just, it, it's still like to think like, how did we get here? We had we had such hope at one time. We kept thinking that there would be this forward progression, and it's like, wow, we're back to the 1950s with a bunch of like, you know, 19th century recon like Jim Crow stuff thrown in there. It, it has a really profound negative impact. So yeah. I know we don't have a whole lot of t- we don't we have like two minutes. So it's a bigger conversation. I just ask like I just think it'd be great for I think everyone needs to start thinking a whole lot more about mental health. I I agree with that. I will take this back. I'm going to now look at our portfolio and see where see, I'm, I'm a community and, of one and see where. No, but you know what? This is it's 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 an enormously important issue, and I think we gloss over it to our peril. And you and I have relative privilege, and I'm still awake every morning at from two mm-hmm. thirty to four, just just like worrying about every single thing on the planet that never used to be my modus operandi it is now because and and i have like i am so insulated from the worst that people are feeling so we do have to take it seriously because you know if you don't have health you don't have anything as people often say but if you don't have mental health you can't even think about health body health so point well taken People should take care of themselves, whatever people need to do, the sort of breathing, the meditation. I've been doing a lot of this lately, uh, even though I, you know, I don't know that it makes that much difference, but I do feel, I feel like I need to be in touch with it, talking about it, elevating it, enormously important, um, because glossing over it is not going to fix it. No, it's not. Well, sadly, we are, we are out of time. I would love for you to come back sometime. Anytime, Pam. I'll, I'll, I'll bribe you. Anytime, Pam, you let me know. I will do that.